Welcome to the sermon podcast of Exodus Church, located in Belmont, North Carolina. For more information about our church and the many ways you can be involved, please go to our website at theexoduschurch.org or email us at info at theexoduschurch.org. Now, if you'll take your Bible and turn to James 4, uh, that's where we're going to be today. We've been in this series in the book of James, uh, subtitled A Call to True and Living Faith, where James has been kind of pressing uh, true and living faith into every area of our lives. Um, And in uh, James 4, he's pressing that into the inevitable conflict, the inevitable conflict that comes into our lives. We should know that conflict is inevitable. It's inevitable in our, in our country, in our world, in our community. It's, it's inevitable in our family. It's inevitable in the church. In fact, every letter written to a church in the New Testament addresses some kind of conflict. And, and we ought to expect that because the church is made up of people who, yes, have been forgiven by Jesus, but they are not, Jesus is not yet finished with them. So there is going to be conflict in the church. And then those people who have been forgiven but not yet finished, we, we bring everything into our relationships. We bring our history. We bring wounds. We bring sinful patterns. We bring perspectives and preferences. Um, we bring our own unique passions, what James is going to call these passions that are the root of our conflicts and quarrels. We bring those into our relationships And then when we get into these conflicts, there's typically kind of three responses, fight, flight, or forget, okay? Now, some of us, when we're in conflict, it's go time. Let's go. You have that perspective. I want to share that with you, you know? Uh, Some of us, uh, flight is our choice. We we just want to run away. We don't want to engage at all. We want to run away. Um, Some of us just want to forget. We want to act like nothing's happened. Now, none of those are an appropriate response to conflict, and thankfully, James 4 shows us a better way. He's going to show us that our, our response to conflict begins with repentance and then leads to how we respond to one another. That's what he's going to show us. And my hope is that this time in God's Word can be helpful. Okay, so I'm going to read James 4, 1 through 12, uh, and then we'll pray quickly and jump in. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray together. 
Lord, we come to you as the one lawgiver and judge, the, the one who is able to save and destroy, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, would you speak? Holy Spirit, you, you know every heart gathered here, every heart listening. Um, Lord, you're able to speak in ways I never could. So we ask that you would speak to our hearts today and that we would see and hear wonderful things from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Quick reminder uh, from last week that James says the root of our conflict he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? So at the root of our conflict are passions. These self-centered desires that lead to self-centered actions and even self-centered prayers. We, we go to God and say, God, I want this. I don't want you. I want this and I want you to give it to me. James says that's at the root of our conflict. And from that root springs a tree of conflict. And maybe the trunk coming up out of that root are things done by us and to us. I mean, we, the, every one of us have things that have been done to us that we bring into conflict. We have these wounds that have happened in our lives. Whether, and you know, most of the things that happen to us, we can kind of, you know, forget and, and leave. But there are some things that happen that are so deep and painful that they dramatically affect the way we live our lives and the way we deal with conflict. And then there's a sinful responses, sinful patterns that we've established that, that kind of flow out of uh, the, the root of our conflict and our passions. Uh, James says, quarrels and fighting. He says, you desire and don't have, so you murder. So there are these sinful actions that kind of come out of the root of our conflict. And then that produces the fruit of conflict in our lives. Sometimes that's around communication or expectations. Sometimes it's around just we want something we don't have. But James wants us to understand that at the root of our conflict, at the root, it's rebellion against God. It's rebellion against God. And so since the root of our conflict is rebellion, our first response to conflict has to be our repentance toward God. Now, James has said in verse 4 that we are adulterous people, that we want what we want. We, we don't want God. We want what God can give us, and sometimes we use God to get it, and he calls us adulterers. It's a type of betrayal, James says. But the good news for people like us, the good news for us is verse 6, but he gives more grace. I love that. Not just grace. He doesn't just give grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so uh, James spends the next four verses in 7, 8, 9, and 10, he spends the next four verses explaining what humility looks like, explaining what repentance looks like. He gives us some very specific things to do. And the first step in repentance, when we're, whenever, whenever we're in conflict with someone, the first step of repentance is verse 7. And the first step is that we submit our hearts to God. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's the first step when we're in conflict with somebody. The first step is, God, would you show me where I'm wrong? Not show them where they're wrong, but God, would you show me? That's the first step in, rep in repentance in the midst of conflict. We've got to come to God like in Psalm 139, show, search my heart, O God, and see if there's any grievous way in me. That's what we've got to do, the first step. Second step in repentance in our conflicts is we need to resist the evil one. Look at verse 7. 
He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now listen, I know that we're all Westerners. We don't like to think about the idea that we live in a supernatural world, but we do. We live in a world that is both natural and supernatural. There are supernatural realities in our lives. And one of those is the influence of the evil one. And James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, from the very beginning of time, the evil one has been causing conflict between God and his people and between God's people. And since Genesis 3, he continues doing that. In fact, in 1 Peter 5, it says, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so when we're in the midst of conflict, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So how do we do that? Well, I think the primary way we do that is we acknowledge his potential presence in conflict. I mean, some of our conflicts could destroy things that are beautiful. And so we need to, we need to acknowledge the presence of the evil one in conflict. Another way we, uh, we resist the evil one is we resist thinking the worst, worst things about the people we're in conflict with. We have to resist his influence we have to resist him, James says, and he will flee from us. And Exodus, I just want to sound the alarm right now. Like this, this would be the perfect time for the evil one to do a whole lot of damage in our church, to, to pour fire on existing conflicts, to just fan those up and burn things down. That would be a perfect time for him to do that. And so we need to keep short accounts with one another. We need to be quick to forgive. We need to bear with one another. We need to be long-suffering and patient with each other. Don't let the evil one get any kind of victory here in our church. Then repentance. The next step of repentance is to draw near to God. He says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So if you're in conflict with somebody, you need to spend a lot of time with Jesus. You need to be drawing near to him in his word. You need to be drawing near to him in prayer. You need, to stay, you need to do your best to keep yourself as close to Jesus as possible when you're in the midst of conflict. And the promise we get in verse 8 is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Not he might, not he could, he will. So when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And maybe you would say, look, I tried that. I tried to draw near to God and I just didn't get anything. Listen, here's what I would say. I love to go fishing, okay? I don't get to as much as I would like because I would like to do it every day, all right? I love to go fishing. And I've noticed that every time I go fishing, I might catch a fish, right? Every time I don't go fishing, I won't. Sometimes I'll go fishing and I have a great day. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Your part is to keep drawing near to him. And I guarantee you, the days you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. I guarantee you, the days you don't draw near to him, he won't. Okay? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James says. Repentance, if we're in conflict, repentance involves us drawing near to God in an ongoing way. Next, repentance involves both our actions and our attitude. Look at verse 8. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's your actions. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's your attitude. Part of repentance involves our actions and our attitude. That starts with confession. We acknowledge what we've done with our hands and we acknowledge what we wanted with our heart. We acknowledge that. That's confession. James calls us to do that. We agree with God that what we've done is inconsistent with his word and character. That's 
confession. And that vertical confession is going to lead to a horizontal apology. That vertical confession is going to lead to a horizontal apology. And we are really good at bad apologies. We are really good at bad apologies. So we'll say, I'm sorry if. Well, that's not an apology. That's not. That's PR. An apology is, I did this. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? That's an apology. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Not an apology. It's not. We confess to God and we apologize to one another. And then this repentance also involves not doing that again. So if you're constantly coming to someone and say, hey, I'm sorry I did this again, like our repentance involves this cleansing and purification where we're saying, look, this what I did and what I wanted was not right. Now listen, we're going to struggle, like Romans 7 is true for us, where we end up doing what we don't want to do. I get that, but like if we're doing that with no concern about what we're doing, we need to ask some hard questions about our repentance. Because repentance involves a, a vertical confession and a horizontal apology and a desire to move forward with not doing those things again. Repentance means also we grieve what God grieves in verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This does not mean that Christians can't have fun. This does not mean that Christians can't laugh. This does not mean that we can't be the happiest people in all of the world. What it means is that when we're in conflict, we grieve what grieves God. And conflict between God's kids grieves his heart. It grieves mine. Like with my kids, it grieves me when my kids are in conflict. Because I look at that and I'm thinking, man, what do I want that to be in 20 years? And it's not what it is right now. We grieve what grieves God. That's part of repentance. And when we're in conflict with people, we need to, it needs to grieve us. What grieves God needs to grieve us. And then finally, we entrust ourselves to the Lord in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We, in conflict resolution, there's two parties, at least, at least two parties. Um, and you can do everything right in conflict resolution. You can check all the right boxes, do all the right things, perfect apologies, say everything perfectly. And there's a person over here that you can't control. You can't control how they respond. You can't control what they do. You can't. And you might do everything right, and they may never really repent. They may never really apologize. They may never do any of that. And what James wants us to do here in verse 10 is similar to what he said, what first Peter says about Jesus. We are to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. And so since uh, the root of our conflict begins with rebellion against God, the first part of healing that conflict is our repentance toward God. Now, the second part of that is how we relate to one another or how we respond to one another. Okay, that's the second part. And there's two parts here. This is in verses 11 and 12. And the two parts we see is how we speak to one another or of one another and how we view ourselves in verse 12. We're going to start with that one, how we view ourselves. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver. In other words, there's only one person, one being in the whole universe who can tell people what to do. There's only one judge. There's only one who can determine what must be done. 
He who was able to save and to destroy. And then James asked this question, but who are you to judge your neighbor? James says there's one lawgiver, there's one judge, there's only one who can save and destroy. Who are you to do it? That's what he's saying. What he's trying to get us to understand is there is a God and it is not us. There is a God and we are not him. And and the, the great news about this God, who is a lawgiver and who is a judge and who is able to save and destroy, the great news about him is that he loved us so much us, like adulterous people who are doing all those things up in verses one through four. He loves us so much that he sent his son to the world to be judged, to, to, to humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he didn't come to condemn the world, but he came that the world might be saved through him so that all who place their faith and hope in him might be saved. That's the good news about the one who sits on the throne of the universe is that he loves us so much that he sent his son to give grace to cover his judgment. But what we need to understand and remember when we're in conflict is that we do not sit on the throne of the universe. And it's our temptation when we're in the midst of conflict to to put ourselves in the place of God. That's our temptation. We, we, we rule and reign over people's motives and meanings and over their intentions. We put ourselves in the place of God over people. And, and what we need to remember is that we never sit on the throne of God and that as brothers and sisters, we are next to one, next to one another as equals under the judgment of God. We don't, we don't sit above one another as judges. We, we are beside one another as equals under the judgment of God. That's what James wants us to understand. And so when we're in conflict, it's very easy for us to start thinking all kinds of negative things about these people and kind of place ourselves in judgment over them. And James would say, no, don't. there's only one lawgiver, only one judge, and it's not us. It's him. And that affects how we speak about one another. Look at verse 11. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That word brothers means brothers and sisters. He's talking about the family of God. And he says, do not speak evil against one another. Now, that's a command. It's a command. That word speak evil uh, could also be translated slander. Do not slander one another. That means do not speak false claims about brothers and sisters. Now, that doesn't mean you can't tell the truth. We're to speak the truth in love. This is, though, where you would say something that's not true. This is to slander someone. And James says, do not do it. And we have a tendency to do that, particularly when we're in conflict with someone. And there's kind of three environments where we might be tempted to do that. The first one is we might slander that person to ourselves. We'll say all kinds of negative things about the person we're in conflict with, and we'll just rehearse that in our own hearts. We will sit and marinate and stew in that. And then we'll, we'll place ourselves as judge over them and we will rehearse the whole trial over and over, bringing all of our evidence, bringing all of the reasons that we're right. And then we'll get ourselves to a place where we would start to think there's no way anyone would think otherwise because we've slandered that person in our heart over and over. Another environment where we don't need to slander others is to other people. Sometimes when we're in conflict with people, we'll go to others and 
And listen, this isn't looking for counsel. We'll go to others and we'll say false things about this person and false. Like, okay, so like if we were to hook up a lie detector, like it, it's not like false, it's like false. You know what I mean? Like it's like close enough to the truth for you to feel good at night, but not close enough to really be true. And so we'll kind of share things with people and then, you know, we'll even say, maybe it's a prayer request. We'll even say, bless your heart because we're from the South, Right? So sharing this with other people is sometimes a way we slander. Another person we slander sometimes is the person we're in conflict with. So we're sitting across from this person in conflict resolution, trying to work it out, and we'll say false things to them that we've worked out in our mind. And instead of letting them qualify and correct, we've already established in our courtroom of our heart that they're wrong and they just need to agree with what I'm saying. Instead of listening Hearing meaning, hearing motive, hearing intention. We have our perception, they have their intention, and we filled the distance with mistrust and anger. And so we slander them. And we use words like always and never, which are rarely true. And so we slander one another. And James would say, we do not sit on the throne of anyone's life except God. And we do not slander one another, not to ourselves, not to others, and not to them. And so if we're going to see healing in our conflict, if we're going to see conflict resolution, it's going to start with repentance toward God. We've got to submit our lives to him. We've got to draw near to him. We've got to confess our sin. We've got to grieve what grieves him. We've got to entrust ourselves to him. It's going to involve how we respond to others. We cannot sit on the throne of the universe God does that, and we've got to speak what's true to them. So when we're tempted to slander a brother, we've got to remember what's true, that this is a person made in the image of God. This is a person who's loved by God. This is a person Jesus died for. This is a person I'm commanded to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven me. And so how we we respond to one another matters. So... How do we apply this? Well, and uh, in our community, there's a lot of ways we can apply this. <laughs> in our community group on Wednesday, we were going through the seven arrows, and we got to the arrow that's, um, what does this demand of me? And all of us looked around, and we were like, a lot. It demands a lot. Um, and that's in- entirely true. There's so many ways to respond. Maybe you need to submit to God in a fresh way today. You need to go to God and say, God, I want to, look, I just, I need to submit my life to you. I've been on the throne of my own life. I've tried to be on the throne of the universe. I need to submit my life to you in a fresh way. Maybe you need to draw near to God. Maybe you need to spend more time in the word and prayer than you do YouTube, Instagram, Disney+. Plus. Watch The Mandalorian Friday. It's okay, all right? But just, you know, we we need to draw near to God. Uh, Maybe we need to confess and apologize. Maybe we need to confess vertically. But in my experience, that's not hard. This is hard. Like I remember when Cheryl and I first got married, we'll celebrate 25 years in February. We're really excited about that, hoping for 25 more. So when we, when, when we first got married, I remember, I remember this to my shame, sitting on the couch after I, after I legit sinned against her. Legit, like this first year, legit sinned against her. And I'm sitting on the couch going, I ain't saying anything. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. I'm not. 
And the Lord was like, moron, get in there, tell that woman you're sorry, and own it, own what you did. Like, this is easy. This is hard. I don't know. I don't know how I don't know how we need to respond. I don't know how we need to respond to the passage. I know how we must respond. And what we must do is humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. There's a lot of ways we could respond. The way we must respond is we've got to humble ourselves. Cuz God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Many of you know I love to watch football, and there was a, a, a game a few weeks ago with the Titans and I think the Buffalo Bills where Derrick Henry was on a run, and he ran around the end, and this little DB used to play in Carolina, Josh Norman, came up to try to tackle him up high, and Derrick Henry just took that grown man, professional athlete, and threw him off the field. Crazy town. Like, and I'm watching this going, that's a world-class professional athlete. He just did that too. Well, that's how God treats the proud. He stiff arms the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so we need to acknowledge that we don't sit on the throne of the world, that we don't sit in God's place in anyone's life. We need to acknowledge that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that our actions have sinned against him, that our attitude has sinned against him. We need to acknowledge that. And then we need to acknowledge that we need grace. We need to acknowledge that we need grace. We've got to humble ourselves because God has more grace. And the reason we can humble ourselves today is because the one who never should have humbled himself did. The one and only Son of God stepped off his rightful place on the throne of the universe and into the world. He humbled himself by even becoming a human. And then he humbled himself all the way to the point of death on the cross so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be forgiven for all the things we've done, all the ways we've sinned against one another, all the ways we've sinned against him, so that we could be forgiven and free. So that we could not just get grace, but that we could get more grace. There's more grace in God than sin in you because the one who should not have, who did not have to humble himself did. And so we must humble ourselves. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you love us so much that you have more grace for people who, who so often want selfish things, who so often mistreat one another with our words, who so often sit on the throne of one another's lives. Lord, you, you give more grace. We need it. We need it, Lord. So help us. Give us grace to get grace. Give us grace to humble ourselves. Give us, give us grace to, to submit our lives to you, God. We, we need grace. We need grace. And so, Lord, would you, we come to you to get it because there's nowhere else in the universe that will give it to us. We need, we need grace today. And we pray this in the name of the one who came to secure it for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.